This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What is going on, Blenders? It's Sean, and I wanted to punch in before this bonus episode with Barry Sonnenfeld to explain a couple of things that happened. So uh, you're going to hear a couple of audio stitches over the course of the interview, and it's really just because as we're all doing this work-from-home deal and we're trying to get these interviews brought into the podcast, it leads to some technical issues. And uh, Barry Sonnenfeld is in uh, Colorado and was having some Wi-Fi issues, uh, so we kept dropping out and then joining back into the call. He was so gracious with his time, and every time he came back on, he just extended further uh, the amount of conversation. You're going to see how long this conversation with Barry actually goes through because there's so much to get to uh, with the material, with his career. I also kind of want to just give you a warning at the top that um, because of the way that his book is structured, which is the reason why we have him on the show this week, uh, we did get into his uh, early career, uh, his early film career, which happens to take place in the adult film industry. And Barry didn't hold back uh, in sharing some of his stories. So it's a little graphic uh, initially, a little more graphic than you might expect from a normal Real Blend episode. And if you want to skip to the 10-minute mark, that's when you're going to start getting into more stories about his work in the Men in Black franchise and his collaboration with Coen Brothers, uh, how he survived a plane crash and almost died, and all these amazing stories that make his book uh, so extremely colorful. So I just wanted to set both of those things up for you guys before you listen to this week's episode. And so without further ado, our interview on the Real Blend podcast with the director, Barry Sonnenfeld. So Barry, honestly, in about a day's time, I ripped through your book. It was one of the fastest reads that I've enjoyed in a really long time. Um, as uh, heavy as the material can be at some times, I found myself laughing out loud so much. And, and I think a lot of it's being from New York and understanding that that personality and that humor, I connected with so much of it. Um, this is an odd question, but I need to know, and I'm sorry to lead with this, but I have to know personally how you're processing the reality of a global pandemic going on right now. You know what? I, listen, I don't want to make fun of the global pandemic, but for over a year, since the very first time I gave my first draft to the editor at Hachette, everything has gone wrong in my life. And I think, although I don't believe in heaven, hell, God, the afterlife, I know that my mother, dead though she be, has done everything in her power to prevent this book from coming out. And when she couldn't prevent it, I mean, literally the day it was sent to the publisher, my first draft, I was rushed to the hospital and had emergency gallbladder sur surgery. So I had my gallbladder removed. Then weeks later, I had to have my right eyeball drained Ooh. The retina scraped, my eyeball refilled with with artificial vitreous humor, <laughs> and then literally for a week, I had to lay 24-7 in a down-facing position. I had to just walk to the bathroom like this. I had to drink my martinis with a straw because I couldn't look up. <laughs> uh, and, and, and then... In fact, I was going to call the sequel to the book, Barry's Book of Vitreous Humor, in fact. <laughs> uh, and then literally uh, when all that finally worked out and uh, I had to have a second surgery and I had yellow jaundice and I had internal bleeding, all from my mother desperately trying to get this book not to come out, <laughs> it finally comes out. So she creates a coronavirus <laughs> so that I can't go on my book tour. I was in New York for nine days and then had to come back. I live in Telluride, Colorado, and that's where I've been. And all my book tours have been canceled. So 
I somehow blame my mother. And how could you not blame? How could you, if you were my mother, wouldn't you want her not to have this book released? I mean, well, I think one of the lines I laughed at the loudest was when she said to you, next time you're going to say bad things about me, say bad things about your father, too. The <laughs> God, that was funny. Um, so I don't want to get too far into the interview without sort of starting at this topping, starting at the beginning a little bit. But I want to talk about your career uh, in porn and the time you started in, in the world of porn and specifically just the idea of the skills that you learned on the set of a porn. Were there any skills that you learned working in porn that you would still use today if you were to walk onto a set you'd go well i remember that and and you would still use it i think that the porn people learned from me actually more than i learned from them <laughs> how so uh, in fact the one thing i should have learned was not to stay very close to a double insertion with a wide angle lens uh because as you guys know i ended up yeah. being covered with a warm, loamy, effervescent fountain of human excrement. Yeah. And Barry, Barry, that's part of what you got drained from your eye, right? Uh, that, years later, that's, you had to get that drained out. Yeah. And, and part of the reason I got covered in a warm, effervescent, uh, loamy uh, fountain of human excrement was because I've always been a wide-angle guy. If you look at all the movies I both uh, shot and uh, directed, I would literally say more than half of the images I've ever worked on were with a 21 millimeter or wider, 21, 17, 14, 14 millimeter. So in 16 millimeter, the equivalent of a 21 is a 10 millimeter. I was a big fan of the F 1.6 Sweetar 10 millimeter lens, mm. because what it does is uh, if you're really close, let's say to a penis, with a 10 millimeter lens, you know, the equivalent of a 21, it, it, everything seems elongated and, and, and large and masculine uh, and funny, you know, uh, lenses can be <laughs> funny. People don't realize this, but lenses have senses of humor. Uh, and I'm going to get back to you, Jake, but I, I will say that uh, I shot throw mama from the train for Billy, uh, for Danny DeVito and Billy Crystal was the co-star and it, everything was a 21 millimeter or the 17 and a half millimeter primo. And the next movie Billy did was called City Slickers. Mm -hmm. And I remember Billy calling me up and saying, hey, Barry, uh, the DP is using long lenses. He's using telephoto lenses. Is, is the movie going to be funny? And I said, nope. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Wow. Oh, my God. Uh, it, it ended up being funny enough. And I will say that Westerns kind of needs oftentimes longer lenses than uh, 21 millimeters. But 21 millimeters, a very funny lens. So what I would say is I didn't learn anything from shooting pornos. What they learned from me is block shooting. And what block shooting means, like if you're doing a TV series, Let's say you only have three days with Alec Baldwin. What you do is you block shoot him in any scene he's in on any set. You, you shoot out Alec because you've made a special deal and you only have him for three days. Or if you have a certain location, you block shoot that location because you've got you've only rented that church for a couple of days. Well, in the case of the nine feature length pornos I shot in nine days. What I did was I convinced the director and producer that once we had a set lit and they were all bad sets, you know, <laughs> who, who builds a dentist's office for pornos? You know, I mean, the guy was an idiot. What was the name of the first porn you made? You know what? I have no idea what their names were. They were 16 millimeters and uh, and uh, so we shot these nine features in nine days. But once you lit the dentist's office, you would shoot every scene that took place into dentist's office. And and truly, the man had no sense of eroticism, and found the worst way to shoot every scene that was totally not 
erotic and honestly though i i can't wait to see a day barry you should <laughs> you should end your film career by shooting a porn in 65 millimeter imax then and having it display on at a science theater like nolan does with like tenet and dunkirk well you know here are the problems with that first of all because there are problems with it first of all i am not an imax fan right. because the format is wrong it's neither 185 nor 235. 143. So it, they either have to crop the top and bottom so you're not at an IMAX theater at that point. In addition, and maybe they changed this, but when we released one of the Men in Blacks in IMAX, they had no discrete subwoofer channel. So all the bass was coming out from the dialogue channel, which is why when you see Batman the Chris Nolan Batman on IMAX, you can't understand a fucking word the man is saying right. because it's it's in the it's along with the visual the uh, the sound effects channel. Mm -hmm. In addition, the last thing you want to do at pornos is have any kind of decent resolution. <laughs> there are so many things totally wrong with seeing porno uh, with uh, any sort of decent resolution. So don't go there. No, that's really funny. All right, so uh, I'm going to take this back because Blood Simple is one of my favorite uh, films ever made. And there's a shot in Blood Simple that to this day still blows my mind. I remember I, had, I was lucky enough to interview Joel and Ethan for uh, Hail Caesar. And we talked very heavily about you and obviously you being on Miller's Crossing, these amazing movies you were involved in. But I wanted to talk to you about what you learned as a DP on the Coen Brothers set specifically that influenced the filmmaker you became. And the shot that I want to talk to you about specifically is the bar shot in Blood bar, Simple. Bar. As your camera is going, you go over the person's head and back down. Can you talk about where that shot came from, what you and the Coens were discussing? Was it your idea? Was it their idea? Was it scripted that way? Uh, for our audience, though, real quick, can you explain what the shot is? Because it really is an amazing shot. Uh, before I explain it, I'm going to say to you, you're welcome, because the Coen brothers took the shot out of the movie. Oh. I was visiting this, uh, their editing room one day. They were, they were uh, cutting at uh, 1600 Broadway, which was a film building. And I, I visited the set, and that shot was out of the movie. And what the shot is, is we're in uh, a bar, and the camera's uh, underhung. And so it's very close to the surface of the the bar and it's tracking along the bar as the bartender, Maurice, and this woman. And by the way, that woman was Fran McDormand's stand-in. Uh, and we gave her that little part. Oh, wow. So they're having a discussion and we're tracking towards them, but there's a drunk laying across the bar. So the camera, when it gets to the drunk, Booms up over the drunk, comes back down again, and then finds Maurice and this this woman in a in a in a two shot. And I I said to Joel, "Hey, why did you guys take out that shot?" And Joel said, "I don't know. Ethan and I felt it was kind of self conscious." And I said, "The entire movie is self conscious. You're gonna." pick on that shot so they put it back in so you have me to thank wow. for the shot to be in there so here's the way joel and ethan and i work uh for months we we lay i laid on the floor and they paced and we designed all the shots for blood simple together you oh. know and and we'd come up with different ideas and so the, the all all the movies i did with joel and ethan are all pre-planned they're all uh, first they're shot listed. Then we, then we actually find the real locations and discover, Oh, that shot won't work. Cause the door is over there instead of over there. So we redo the shots and then we storyboard them. But I think what I, we, we had a very similar aesthetic. I think what I taught them was the joy of wide angle lenses, which we've already discussed. And I'll, if you want to get technical, I'll explain to you what's so great about a wide angle lens. But the other thing is, because I'm an only child of Jewish persuasion, 
I thought it was very important that people pay attention to me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, I never thought I could be an actor. But what I realized is that a camera can be more than a recording device. It's a leading character. The it can be a character, a character yes. in the movie. Just like it, that shot in Bud Simple. And you look at all the stuff we did in Raising Arizona, you know, going over the fountain in the car, up the ladder into Florence, Arizona's mouth. So for me, the camera is more than a recording device. It's a storytelling device. It's it it. It it's it can be comedy. It could be sad. It could. So I think what Joel and Ethan and I learned together, because the first day on the set of Blood Simple was the first day that Joel, Ethan, or I had ever been on a movie set. None of us ever worked our way up. And if I have any advice to give people that are young and want to get into the film business, what I would say is decide what you want to be and declare that that's who you are mm. and that and don't do anything else but that. I never was a camera assistant or a camera operator. Joel never had directed except for student films before. Ethan had never produced. And so what I did is when I got out of graduate film school, I bought a used 16 millimeter camera. This is way before... Uh, Video. There was no video. Now you would buy like a Nikon D something or a Sony A74 or whatever. But then it was only 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter cameras. So I bought a used 16 millimeter camera so I could call myself a cameraman mm. without being a dilettante. Mm. And what's weird is there were two guys at film school. We both lived in the same building on East 7th Street. One was me, one was Bill Pope. Oh, wow. And, oh, and wow. Pope, Bill Pope, Pope is Sam Raimi's guy, man. He's amazing. Yeah, Pope shot the uh, spider. And he actually shot Men in Black 3 for me. He shot Clueless. He shot the Matrix movies. So Pope and I were known as the two camera guys at film school. Oh my even, God. even though at film school... Everyone had to do everything. You had to write, direct, edit your own movies. You couldn't just be a scriptwriter or something like that, which was really, I think, one of the good things about NYU is it taught you how movies got made. Mary, this is a super quick follow-up because Sean is next, but only I want to ask you this because I was wondering when, when the baton kind of passed from you to Deacons and then Deacons obviously took over with Hudsucker going forward, did you and Deacons ever meet and talk about like styles? Like did, did you guys ever have, I, I would love to know the history of that because you went on to do Adam's family, but that's an interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, Deacons and I occasionally I'll visit the set of a Coen brothers movie. I was uh, visited the set one day on uh, like hail Caesar and Roger uh, won't even acknowledge me. I'll go. Hi Roger. And he'll go. Hello. Here's the thing. Roger's very good but we had totally different styles in that I lit individual shots. Roger's whole thing is lighting sets. And once a set is lit, he shoots within that set, but he doesn't really change the lighting much for individual shots. And I remember seeing a serious man, which is one of the, I think one of the best Coen brothers movies especially if you're awesome. Jewish. <laughs> and I said to Joel and Ethan, and this gets back to Roger. I said, I got to say, it's my favorite movie that you guys have made since I was no longer your DP. And they mm -hmm. said, why? And I said, no panning. I never let the Coens pan. Panning is the laziest thing you can do in, in designing and setting up shots. In fact, Joel, Ethan, and I were at the Zigfield for the premiere of um, Gangs of New York, Gangs the Scorsese York. movie. Wow. And, and, and Ethan said to me, why is that movie so bad? And I said, too much panning. Can you explain that, though? Like, what do you mean? Why is panning bad? I, you, I read that in your book and I, I don't I couldn't understand it because it's probably something that we see on a regular basis and I just didn't absorb it. Panning is incredibly lazy. 
is a lazy way to frame because uh, first of all, I like my frames to be square to the environment, right? So as soon as you pan, you're off square, right? Oh, yeah. If you track, you stay on square. If you push in, you're still in square. As soon as you pan, let the guy leave camera and pick him up in the right angle. Panning is so lazy. It's just recording. It's not designing. And the funny thing, and, and since you read the book, when I hired Owen Roisman to be my DP on Adam's family, I say, I only have three requests. And he says, what are they? I said, uh, for, first of all, uh, I think that Angelica Houston should have her own motivated light. Even if she's standing right next to a window, Morticia should be lit like a Harrell photograph, you know, with a Charlie Barton. So she should look beautiful and she should carry in effect her own motivated light. He said, I love it. I said, second of all, if you don't mind, I'd like to design the shots and pick the lenses because it's just the way I see. And I cut a certain way. I don't shoot masters. I'll explain why and why all film schools should do what I'm about to tell you to do. And he said, I love it. You can design all the shots, less work for me. And then he said, watch the third thing. And I said, I really want you to use 5247, which is a slower film stock, but very beautiful. It's got really rich blacks. It's not grainy. And Owen said to me the exact question I would have asked him. He said, will I ever have to pan? And I said, you will never have to pan. And he and he'll and he said, well, then I can shoot the slow stock. And I'll tell you why. The more the slower the stock, the more lights you need, obviously. And if you're panning, then all your lights that are just out of frame come into frame if you start to pan. Right. which means the lights have to be further away. You need bigger lights or the lights have to be higher up. And the higher up a light is, the less flattering it is on a face. So Owen ended up being the DP. But I, I will tell you that Roger, because he lit whole sets and not individual shots, let the Cohen brothers start to pan. And I think that their movies just went downhill and, until a series of unfortunate, uh, until um, a serious man, because that's the first one where they didn't pan. There is one panning shot, which is when Michael Stuhlberg is up on his roof fixing the antenna so he could find F Troop for yeah. his kid. Yeah. And there's a panning shot of the neighborhood. And you see that a uh, Jewish woman who's ba- uh, sunbathing nude <laughs> in the, in the next yard. So that's, I think the only pan in that shot. So uh, Roger and I had very different styles. Um, he's very, very good. I actually prefer the work they do with Bruno. Mm. Interesting. Talking about, uh, Blood Simple. Uh, obviously, you met Joel Cohen at a party. You guys start talking, and that's kind of where that whole relationship started out. So, by no means, obviously, I mean you went to school. By no means do I want to take away from the hard work and the talent and the determination. But how much of success in this business can be attributed to luck? In the sense that, like, you met a guy at a party, and then that's where it, careers flourished from that moment. Luck is everything. Uh, every, every, you're lucky that you didn't get hit by a bus today. Very true. Uh, you know, uh, I, I used to look back over my career and think about the movies I didn't do and the movies I did do. And why did I do that one? And why didn't I do this one? But truthfully, and Griffin, the Arcanian will tell you this from men in black three, Every single second of every single day, there are trillions of decisions that are being made right now that's going to affect you tomorrow. So all my point is, yes, it was totally lucky that I met Joel Cohen at a party and he was looking to shoot the a trailer as if Blood Simple was a finished movie and needed someone 
uh, to help him shoot the movie. And I said, I had a camera and he said, I'm hired. And, you know, that led to us raising the 750 grand to make blood simple. That led to uh, somehow getting accepted at the New York film festival. And listen, here's another lucky moment. That movie was reviewed in the New York Times by Janet Maslin mm -hmm. and not Vincent Canby. Canby hated the movie. Mm. Uh, several of the next movies he reviewed after Janet Maslin gave this glowing review to Blood Simple, Canby literally would write, Unlike Blood Simple, this is a good movie. He just hated Blood Simple. <laughs> if Canby had reviewed Blood Simple, I don't know that I'd be talking to you guys today. Wow. So life, life is what it is. And you can't look back and you can't look forward. And you just have to accept that wherever you are is probably where you're supposed to be, I guess. I don't know. Barry, I want to bring it back around to the book just for a second, because in reading through it from start to finish, it, it you just come across as somebody who, because of your storied career, have a million stories that you can tell. You could tell a million stories about each film individually, I would imagine. So how do you, throughout the course of the process, choose which ones are going to be included uh, and then put that structure together to, uh, so that they'll flow into one comprehensive narrative? You know, it's it's really interesting. I, you know, the New York Times, which gave it a get great review, was angry that I didn't write about the Men in Black movies or, or Wild Wild West, which he obviously didn't like and wanted me to sort of have excuses for it or something. Uh, my book was twice as long. Uh, here's here's my theory about everything. Shorter is better. There's only one movie I've ever directed that's longer than 90 minutes, and that's uh, Get Shorty, because the script was 20 pages longer than a normal script. Uh, my book was literally twice as long, and I just took out 11 chapters. Wow. Because oh my gosh. I just didn't want to bore people. And, uh, you know, if if the book does well and they want another one, I got another one already half written. Um, I didn't want, I didn't want this book to be, you know, all about the movies I worked on, you know, nor did I only want it to be about my youth. You know, the first half is sort of what I wanted it to be about was about my neuroses and where it comes from and, and why it exists. And uh, so uh, these were, these were sort of interesting to me, you know, um, I could have written a book about, you know, a series of unfortunate events or the men in black movies, but you know, that it will, it will come. And I would literally sit at my computer and write 30, 40 pages a day. It was really easy for me. I, I have a good memory. I believe that the more specific a joke is, the funnier it is. So, it, you know, my book is full of specificity. Um, but it just sort of, uh, to be honest with you, I thought I was going to write a book in the style of David Sedaris. I thought I was just going to write a series of interesting stories that have happened in my life. I had no idea it would end up being kind of chronological. Mm -hmm. That sort of happened through the process. Um, uh, I sort of am jealous of Sedaris because because I've written this chronological thing. In in some ways, it was harder because I took out some really really funny stories. I mean, for three years, I was an elevator operator at Forty Wall Street and would get car sick and have to stop the elevator on a mechanical floor and go off and vomit <laughs> while an entire elevator full of lawyers were waiting for me to get done throwing up and getting back in the elevator. Cause it's, you know, the kind where you, you, you know, you turn the thing yeah. and there's a gate yeah. and all that. So there, there's so <laughs> many stories that I just had to take out. Cause I just, I didn't want to bore people, but, uh, the, Look, if I write a sequel, believe me, you'll read all about 
Wild Wild West, The Three Men in Blacks, Big Trouble, lots of more stories about, you know, my life and, you know, how we accidentally bought a house in Telluride and all, all that stuff. But it, right it next just, to the very competitive Kelly Ripa. <laughs> well, uh, Kelly, listen, this, this, this homeowners association has four houses, Larry Kasdan, Jerry Seinfeld, Kelly Ripa and me. Wow. So uh, <laughs> there, there's fun times to be had by all. Wow. You know, Barry, uh, I, I know you speak in the book uh, about Penny Marshall, and obviously I know that you were the cinematographer on Big. And I, I'm just genuinely curious from a perspective of what it was like to shoot the piano scene on the day. Uh, wh what you remember about filming that? Was the sound being captured in the movie, the actual sound that was being made on the piano in the store? Uh, what do you remember about filming that with Tom Hanks? It was a really, really hard day to film that scene for a variety of reasons. First of all, uh, you know, again, we're talking about decades ago where there was very different lighting equipment. If we were shooting that today under each key, there would have been LED lights. Oh, wow. LED lights are much cooler and much brighter. They're much more efficient. So under our keys were tiny little, you know, bulbs, you know, incandescent bulbs. So you couldn't have too many bulbs or you'd start to melt the keyboard. Oh, wow. So the, the challenge for that, it's funny you should talk about that because it looks pretty effortless except for Tom and Loja having to dance around a lot. But the problem was if the environment was too bright, the keys would not have glowed mm. because the keys were not very bright. So I was constantly trying to put big uh, blacks, you know, big pieces of duvetine in the windows to darken the room so that, that the lights would shine. Today it would have been much easier. We would have either used LEDs and we probably would have enhanced it because back then also, you know, there was no, um, color suites there there like there are now you couldn't take individual parts of a frame and make it brighter or darker so it was actually a really hard scene the sound is totally post-production because oh. what you were really hearing was t tom and loja stomping on the keys and so you could hear i mean it did make sounds but it was aesthetically not pleasing how did Tom know what key to go to without sound? Oh, no, there was sound, but it was they could hear the sound, but it was totally not aesthetically pleasing. They would hear it. But what you were mainly hearing is clomp, clomp, clomp. And under clomp, 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 you heard. Da, 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 da. But they practiced and they did a great job. And, you know, Robert Lozier was not a spring chicken then and he really worked hard and they rehearsed a lot and i i loved i mean everyone remembers that scene so well but it was a nightmare to shoot we were actually at fao schwartz we only had two days there and had many other scenes you know tom has plays with guns and you know nerf guns and stuff so it was really difficult and not nearly as easy as it looked oh <laughs> Speaking of Tom, you obviously got to get you, you really got to get to know him at a period of time in which he was more known for for comedy. See, I mean, obviously, I know he got the first Oscar nomination for big, but like he wasn't that far off of Bosom Buddies and you got to spend some time with him with the burbs. But I'm curious, obviously, in the 90s, when I really started growing up with Tom Hanks is when he started being known as this more serious, dramatic actor. Were you surprised at the direction his career would take of sort of that shift whenever he got into the 90s? You know, I wasn't, Tom was an incredibly great actor and incredibly lovely, you know, and incredibly patient with, with Penny, who was, you know, she was tough because she not only wouldn't make decisions, but really didn't give direction. I, I remember one night we were shooting in Tom's loft and Tom's been on a bed uh, on a date with Elizabeth Perkins and he's in the lower bunk and he's mm. on the top or vice versa. And we were doing 15 takes of just like a master, which is 
just you don't want to burn actors out on master takes because you're going to use it at the beginning of the scene and at the end of the scene. And and Penny was lying on a Gumby chair being massaged while we were doing these takes. Literally, if you might Penny, you would hear. Uh, uh, uh. Luckily, she was far enough away from the set. And, you know, at some point she would say cut and then would go, okay, let's do it again. And I go, well, Penn, is there a reason why you want to go again? You know, we have all this other coverage to get to. No, let's go again. And she wouldn't even talk to Tom. So I would go to Tom and say, hey, Tom, Penny wants to do it again. And Tom would say, which is the right thing to ask, Penny Tom would say, does she want me to do anything differently? Is there a reason we're going again? What does she want me to do different? Hold on, Tom. Hey, Penn. (laughs) Tom wants to know if you want him to do anything different. And Penny would say, no, just tell him do it again. (laughs) So Tom was this great guy. In fact, here's the story. (laughs) When I was finishing Adam's family, the head of uh, Paramount then, the president of Paramount, not the CEO, was a guy named Gary Lucchese. Gary had a script called, uh, had a novel called Forrest Gump. And he said, look, I've got eight scripts. They all suck. Can you read this book and tell me if you want to do it? So I read Gump and the lead of Gump was actually a big fat guy who was really strong. It was like Confederacy of Dunces in many okay. ways. Okay. And I said to Gary, well, here's what I would do. I would make Gump a runner instead of a fat big guy. Mm. And I'll send it to Hanks uh, if you're okay with it. And, and Gary said, sure, send it to Hanks. So I sent Hanks a novel. I said, you should be a runner, not a fat guy. I mm. said, you probably don't want to do it because it's too much like big and that he's another version of a man child, you know? Mm-hmm. Hanks signs on. We get Eric Roth to write this screenplay. And then Paramount decides they want to do Adam's Family Values. So I said, I'll only do Adam's Family Values if you wait for me to do Gump. And I'll do both. Paramount says yes. Penny Feinerman, the, uh, uh, no, uh, not Penny Feinerman. What's her name? Feinerman, who was a producer and who was married at the time to Mark Canton, who was running Warner Brothers, says, I don't want to wait. And by the way, she's right. Hanks could die. There could be three other movies just like this one. There's so many things that could go wrong. She didn't want to wait. I had to choose between Forrest Gump or uh, uh, Adam's Family Values. And Adam's Family was, you know, my firstborn. You know, it was the first thing I ever directed. So it was an easy choice of me to do Adam's Family Values. What I should have done is made sure my agent, who's no longer my agent, but at the time was, to have gotten me a producing credit. Since I got Hanks and it was my idea to make him a runner, but it didn't happen. But anyway, I always knew that Hanks was going to be an actor that uh, expanded beyond comedies. And uh, he's just a really good actor. And, Mm -hmm. And truthfully, what you really want in a comedy is a really good actor and not a comedian. My philosophy about comedies, and this is also in my book, is you never want anyone working on a comedy to know they're working on a comedy. Mm-hmm. You don't want the DP to know because it will be too bright. You don't want the lab to know it will be even brighter. You don't want the composer to know because there'll be slide whistles and triangles. You want the scene to be funny but you want the actors to play it for, for reality. Mm-hmm. If the reality is absurd or stupid, it will be funny, but you never ever want to say to an actor, 
can you do one funnier? Mm. You say to the actor, do one faster, and that will make it funnier. Mm. So I always knew Hanks was a real actor. Mm. And a real actor, yeah. That's a big part of the reason why I think The Birdcage is one of the funniest films I've seen. (laughs) Because everyone in that film plays it seriously. I love The Birdcage. In fact, Bo Welch, who was a production designer on many of the movies I've directed, was also the... the, uh, production designer on that too. And I love the birdcage. Everyone's just playing the reality of their character. Yep. Yes, very much. And so. that's what makes, and Robin is amazing in it. And he's yeah. sort of the least funny guy in that show. Right. And it's- only Mike Nichols could mm. sit on Robin that much to make him not vamp. And, yeah. and it, he's great in it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioning, you the, a potential reality where you almost directed Forrest Gump, where we see your version, not Zemeckis's. You also pepper in these little one-off statements throughout the book that got us thinking or got me thinking about alternate versions of, you know, uh, Dustin uh, Hoffman potentially being in Get Shorty, uh, Warren Beatty almost potentially being in Get Shorty. You mentioned that for a while De Niro was uh, considered for big, which I didn't even know. Um, so I'm just curious, like, how many of those have you heard over the years, you know, with all the different projects that you've circled or heard friends be involved in potential classic movies that if not for this thing that you talk about, the, the quantum mechanic of just, you know, these various changes that do you have thousands of these that, you know, of? yeah, well, let's talk about men in black. You know, when I, sweetie and I get my, I call my wife, sweetie, we get scripts together she gives me a 60 page head start because I'm a really slow reader. We read Men in Black and she turned to me and said, Will Smith. I turned to her and said, Tommy Lee Jones. I called the studio and the producers and said, I, I it needs some work, but I love the concept, which is that we don't have a fucking clue what's really going on. Mm. And I, I love it and I want to do it. And they said, great, we want Clint Eastwood and Chris O'Donnell. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, I think it should be Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. And they were okay with the Tommy of it. So we sent it to Tommy and I had a meeting with him and Tommy eventually came on board, but they would not give up Chris O'Donnell. Spielberg wanted Chris O'Donnell. And he said, look, you're going to be in L.A. next week. Chris is in L.A. I want you to take him to dinner at the restaurant at the Four Seasons Hotel on Doheny and convince Chris to do this movie. Mm -hmm. So I take Chris to dinner and he says, you know, I have to tell you, A, I don't think the script is that good. B, I have this other opportunity to do something with Stallone. So why should I do men in black? And I said, well, first of all, if you have a chance to work with Stallone, you should do that. I, I worked with Stallone for a week before he fired me off of tango and cash. I love tango and cash. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got stories. I got stories. Um, But you read, you read, uh, there's one whole story about, uh, but I got a million more. Um, (laughs) There's a whole chapter about tango and cash. But in any case, uh, I said, you know, Stallone's really smart and you should work with him. And I said, second of all, in terms of you worrying about the script for men in black, you should be worried. I I don't think it's very good, and I'm not a good director, and I don't know how to fix a problem. <laughs> so the next day, he 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 uh, passed yeah. on on Men in Black, and a few weeks later, Spielberg spent his summers in East Hampton, and I knew that Will was at a wedding in Philly, and I arranged for a helicopter to take Phil uh, to take Will from the wedding to East Hampton, I made sure some of Spielberg's kids were there to tell Spielberg that Will was really good. Because remember when when Will did Men in Black, the only feature he had done was Six Degrees of Separation. Right. And uh, you know, Day. he had Independence Day coming out or not yet? No. Uh, when he was hired, 
he hadn't even started Independence Day. And then while we while we were working on the script and all that, he started Independence Day. And in fact, the first two weeks of Men in Black, Will was still finishing Independence Day, but it hadn't come out yet. So it was only Fresh Prince and Six Degrees of Separation. And Sweetie was a big Fresh Prince fan and thought Will would be really funny in that role, but it was never written for like a white guy or a black guy or anything like that. And here's the other theory about comedies. Not, not only do you never want anyone to like act funny, but you always need a straight man and a funny guy in your movie. You don't ever want two guys being funny in your movie. And what's great about men in black is that Tommy Lee Jones is George Burns and Will Smith is Gracie Allen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and so, uh, so yeah, there, I can't imagine, I'm trying to remember of all the, Oh, uh, big trouble, which was a really good movie that no one saw because, uh, it was supposed to come out a, a week before. I still do that. Uh, that airport thing. Every time I go to the airport, I always go, are we arriving or are we departing? I still cannot figure it out. I always think of that. I love that scene so much. And my wife and I to this day go, well, we're arriving at the airport, but we're <laughs> departing on the plane. Right. Yeah, no, we, we still do it every time. <laughs> great cast. Warburton is great. Uh, uh, Dennis Farina is fantastic. But that's an example where we, Disney insisted on uh, the lead being, oh, who is the lead? You know. Tim Allen. Tim Allen. Disney insisted on Tim Allen. I really wanted Alec Baldwin. Oh, okay. Uh, Tim Tim was fine. I thought Tim was trying to be a little too funny. I wish he was a little less funny, but he's good. But I think Alec would have been maybe better, but maybe, who knows? But uh, so there's almost no show we can talk about where the lead wasn't supposed to be some someone else. And And as you mentioned, when I started... Uh, big, it was De Niro. I mean, right. he was supposed to do it. And then uh, Barry Diller, who was running Fox at the time, insisted on Hanks. Hanks had another movie. I left Big, shot Throw Mama from the Train with Danny, and then came back and did Big uh, after finishing Throw Mama. And I loved the experience of working on Throw Mama. Danny and I Loved every second of working together on that show. Right before we were talking to you, I, I was uh, I was messaging. Uh, this sounds like I'm name dropping, but I, I, there's a longer story behind it. But I was messaging with Josh Brolin and I was telling him that I was speaking to you for the first time. And, and I'd never talked to you in a longer format before. And I was really excited to talk to you. And he was like, tell him I said, hey. Uh, and he was, you know, obviously he loved working with you in Men in Black. So I was wondering if you had any stories about working with Brolin, what it was, what it was, what you saw in Brolin that kind of felt that he could be the younger Tommy Lee Jones. What was it about Brolin that kind of gave you that vibe? And what did you like working with him? Uh, Well, first of all, Brolin and Tommy have the biggest heads, physical heads of any movie stars (laughs) and uh, big heads make big movie stars. It's just like a rule. So, so bro, first of all, I thought Brolin looked, and could sound like Tommy. And I won the Director's Guild Award for directing uh, the pilot of Pushing Daisies. And it was the same night the Coens were there winning for No Country. So I'm up there making my speech and I'm looking down and there's Joel and Ethan kind of scowling at me because I remember I was spent a lot of time talking about my scrotum, which is unusual for... uh, (laughs) Uh, the director's guild. Uh, but anyway, it, it happens. And there was Brolin. And I looked at Brolin. And I thought, Jesus, that guy looks like Tommy Lee Jones. The show's over. There's an after party. I'm hanging out with Joel and Ethan and Brolin. And I said to Brolin, hey, you, I think you'd be perfect as young Tommy Lee Jones. And he said, great. Sounds great. Send me a script. Now, here's an interesting story about agents. 
One of the most powerful agents there are is a guy named Ari Emanuel. He's the head of William Morris Endeavor, WME. And he's really good friends with Mark Wahlberg. And he really wanted, and I'm at WME also, and he really wanted Mark Wahlberg to play young Tommy Lee Jones. And I think Mark would have done a great job, but I think Brolin was born to play Tommy. And by the way, Brolin, the entire time we worked together, had a tape recorder and had all of Tommy's dialogue from the first Men in Black. And whenever he was on the set, he was listening to Tommy's uh, uh, lilt. And Tommy has the most musical voice. It's a beautiful voice. It it really flows and ebbs. It's very sing-songy. And Brolin did a fantastic job. He made me cry so many times watching him. But... The head of WME wants Mark Wahlberg. And this is, I don't understand why this works, but I would be sitting minding my own business somewhere and my cell phone would ring and Ari Emanuel's assistant would say, please hold for Ari. This happened twice. I go, okay. Uh, (laughs) Hi, Ari, what's up? Mm -hmm. You called me. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Ari, I didn't call you. Yes, you did. I'm returning your call. Well, if you're returning my call, there's nothing to talk to you about. I didn't call you. You called me. Well, okay. Well, in any case, it was a mistake. Goodbye. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Since I have you on the phone, what about Mark Wahlberg? Well, you know, he'd be great, but I've offered it to Josh. Well, you should meet Mark. Okay, fine. Goodbye. Two weeks later, phone rings. Can you hold for Ari? Yes, I can hold for Ari. Hi, Ari. What's up? You called me. (laughs) I don't know what the theory is, but I guess it's to show that he doesn't really care (laughs) that he wouldn't so that he wouldn't make the fucking phone call. So literally, uh, I ended up having to meet Mark Wahlberg and Mark was lovely. He was great. He would have been great in the role. But I wanted Brolin, so I got Brolin, and uh, thank God the studio backed me up. But they were really nervous about, you know, making Ari upset that I didn't go with his guy. But Brolin was fantastic, and Brolin was brilliant at young as young Tommy. And I remember the one thing Tommy said to me about Brolin's performance is, where do you get that accent? I don't have any Texas accent. Hmm. And I said, well, actually, Tommy, you do. He said, I don't think so. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, Brolin was perfection. I loved working with him. And he he had a hard time on that show because a lot of times he had to act off camera to me, and I'm a terrible actor. <laughs> you know, Will would be back in L.A., and uh, Brolin would still be in New York where we shot it, and I would doing off camera lines. It, it was it was a tough job for him, and and he was fantastic. I love you, Hader in it for yes. as, Andy, as Andy Warhol. Yeah, uh, Bill Hader was uh, fantastic, uh, <laughs> and I loved his line, which is, "I'm so out of ideas. I'm painting soup cans and bananas for Christ's <laughs> sake," uh, you know, because he's secretly a, a, a men in black agent, you know, yeah. pretending to be. <laughs> this artist uh, uh, and and I uh, hater was fantastic in it. I, I loved him. And, you know, I ran into him uh, actually at the last DGA awards. I was nominated for a series of unfortunate events, but lose every year to Sesame street. But in any case, I said to hater, Hey, did you name your show Barry? Because Barry is like the worst, most lousiest, depressingest name for anyone to be named. <laughs> And Hader went, yeah. <laughs> and I said, believe me, I know. If I could, I mean, I'm not happy with Barry either. But I didn't say, did you name him after me? But I did know he named him after, like, the worst name any male could have is Barry. So thank you very much, Hater. But Barry, you, you told me something uh, earlier in this interview, which is very true, which is that I'm very lucky. Like, I could have been hit by a bus today, and I'm lucky that I wasn't. You almost died in a fucking plane crash, like like so much so that the pilot 
was fairly convinced that you were all going to die. I'm sort of curious, like, that's the sort of thing that, that changes a person. Like, you're like, I would imagine, like, your entire life perspective changes on the other side of almost dying in a plane crash. Like, did, like, did that affect you all? I did, like, did it affect your work? Like, I mean, what, what is sort of like almost dying in a situation like that, like, do to you? Well, in the case of almost dying in a plane crash, it mu- made me a much better flyer. Uh, which is weird, but true. And it's not because I'm not going to die in a plane crash. I'm still going to die in a plane crash. But now that I know what it's going to be like, it's okay. And, uh, you know, Mm. my joke is that every time I get off an airplane, I view it as a failed suicide attempt. (laughs) I was always a terrible flyer. I would wake my wife up on, you know, TWA or Pan Am flying out to LA and say, cause she almost was a pilot. And I go, the, what happened? She go, what happened? And I go, well, the pitch of the plane just went from mm, to mm. she said, well, that happens. You know, planes change direction. Why would it change direction? We're over Kansas. What's the ch- well, planes fly from one VOR to. So anyway, I'm a really bad. I was a really bad. Flyer. Because my theory was if you if you get hit by a bus, you're going to die kind of instantly. You're not going to have a lot of time thinking I'm about to die. What should I have done differently? Should I what could have happened that would have prevented me from getting on this plane? What uh, I never should have done X or Y. Maybe I shouldn't have done Adam's family values and should have done gum. All the things that can happen for the five minutes you're going to crash. In my case, it was 14 minutes where we were out of control, nose diving to the ground, right? But that didn't happen. I didn't relive my life. I didn't think about all the things I could have done differently. I didn't weep uncontrollably and think, what will life be like for my wife and my child without me around? Instead... I cross my arms, I put my feet up in front of me, and I tried different line readings of, and now I die. (laughs) So, and by the way, from the plane cockpit where the pilot, co-pilot, and flight attendant are behind the the door, I'm hearing claxtons and warnings and beeping and recorded announcements saying, Stall, stall. You know, it's it's bad. In fact, the story sounds so ridiculous that in my book, I published the NTSB transcript of the black box so that people could see I'm not exaggerating. And literally, when you read the transcript, literally, the, the co-pilot is saying things like, yee-haw, <laughs> and we're not going to make it. You know, so like this isn't like me making up a story. So first I try and now I die. Then I try and now I die. Then I try and now I die. And finally, because it's only a four word line reading, I go and now I die. And then eventually we get over the runway and we're way too far down to land. But I think they're out of fuel, actually. We do a 180 to avoid the brick wall. And now the pilot using her genius method of stopping the plane because the reverse thrusters aren't working. She is aiming at and crashing into parked airplanes as a way to slow us down. So we we destroy... Five Cessnas and Piper Cubs. We leave the airport. We take out a fence. We're now in the Van Nuys parking lot. <laughs> We're taking out cars. We destroy a Dodge Ram 3500 dually and come to a stop in the parking lot with the front door of the plane lodged against a pine tree, which they can't see, but I can because I'm further back in the plane, three out of control human beings open the cockpit door. 
They can't get the door to the plane open because of the pine tree, which they can't see. And in a very sardonic voice, I point to all the liquid coming out of the left side engine and I say, say, are we at all worried about that? (laughs) And the pilot says, and you don't want a pilot to say this, she says, oh my God. (laughs) The three of them run past me and I wait for instructions until I realize I'm alone on the airplane. (laughs) They have run past me, opened the cargo door. This was a Gulfstream 2. And they opened the cargo door and ran out and fled. Never said, hey, bear, this way or anything. So at some point I go, I think I'm alone here. So I go to the back of the plane, past the broken china and all the little chapsticks and little individual mouthwashes they put on those private jets. And I look out the cargo door and my crew is fleeing because they think the plane's going to explode. And all the traffic helicopters all over LA are now circling the airport. My pilot is ripping her epaulets off so she can't be seen as a pilot from above. (laughs) And and I'm standing there and my fear of flying is second only to my fear of heights. So I'm not going to jump off this, the back of the plane. So Eventually, the fire department comes and all the firemen get out and they run to me and they're screaming, get off the plane, get off the plane. But they're not specific. And at that moment, you really want specificity. So I go, it's fine for you to say, get off the plane, but who's catching me? And they go, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. Wrong thing to say. Don't say it doesn't matter. Just pick one of you. It doesn't matter. Just get off the plane. Get off the plane. So you look around, you find a fireman with the biggest mustache because they all have mustaches. And I said, you, you're catching me. And he says, I don't give a flying fuck, which is kind of ironic. (laughs) I don't give a flying fuck. Just get off the plane. So I basically hug him. I'm not that high. I'm about seven feet off the ground. I hug him. I swing into him and we all run away. The plane doesn't crash, but it made me a better flyer because I realized, oh, oh, that's what it's going to be like when I die in a plane crash. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to relive my life. If anything, I'm, I'm going to sort of like try different line readings. But here's here's my last piece of advice to you about this is a life lesson, okay? It it actually in this case involves flying, but never be an optimist. There's no <laughs> upside to optimism. Here's what you want to do. Here's here's why pessimism is the only way to be. Because you're never going to be disappointed. Say what? You'd never be disappointed, basically. Sorry, sorry. Exactly, exactly. If you get on the plane and you elbow your best friend and you say, you know what? I think this plane is going to crash before we get to Cleveland. One of two things happens. If the plane starts to nosedive to the ground, you get to elbow your friend and say, was I right or what? <laughs> and if the plane doesn't crash, you live. Yeah. It's win-win. There's no downside to pessimism. And that's my my little <laughs> gift to you today. I love that. The only, the only thing that would have made that story uh, better, Barry, is if the airline was Pan Am. I just think that would have been really ironic. <laughs> no, Pan Am would be good. Yeah. No, no longer in existence. No, no. Well, listen, if you want to uh, read, and I swear that that is one story in a sea of memorable tales told by Barry Sonnenfeld, including. So the book is called uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. And we didn't even touch on the amazing Hendrix story. And I don't want you to tell it here. I want people to discover it in the book. There's a reason why it's called that. uh, And for so many other reasons, the book is called Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. Uh, Barry, we honestly cannot thank you enough for your time on the Roblox podcast. Well, it was truly a pleasure. All your questions were great. And if you ever want me to do a master class about lenses, let's figure out how to do that because I've got theories.
You don't understand. This is the podcast for that. Yeah, this is it. You, this is, you're, you've come to the right place. Barry, I would talk to you about lenses for 25 hours. I, I, <laughs> I would that, I, Hearing what you were saying earlier about wide angles and panning, I, I, I've, I've never thought of that before and i love filmmaking so thank you for that I, i'm really i'm really into that stuff so thank you all right well uh, five months from now let's get back together again and do this again good we're in yes we're looking forward that. to it and all right Barry, thank you it's a date thank it's you thank buddy. you for the detail about the blood Amazing. simple bar shot i appreciated that, that was <laughs> all good. pleasure Thank you guys so much for listening to this bonus episode of Real Blend. Thank you to Barry Sonnenfeld for coming on and joining us for this time. If you guys want to hear more of these amazing stories uh, written in extremely colorful language by the great Barry Sonnenfeld, the name of the book is called Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. Really, really funny. Some great, great Hollywood history stories. Thank you again to Barry for coming on. We will talk to you guys on the Real Blend podcast very, very soon. And because Kevin's not here, I'm the one who gets to say Dunkirk. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.